the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s, a program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of faith. Nearly 60 years later, during these challenging times, we'll take a new look at our divisions, our connections, in a new program called Challenge 2.0. Six million Jews died in Nazi death camps in Europe during World War II. That's accepted fact in Germany. It's illegal to claim otherwise. But it's not illegal in this country where Holocaust denial has become one of two strategies promoted by white nationalists. The second strategy is to embrace the Holocaust and its goal of eradicating Jews. In this episode of Addicted to Hate, we seek to unpack those trends and get a sense of how we're called to respond. Well, I'd like to thank each of our guests for joining us today. Uh, Professor Christopher Browning is a historian specializing in the Holocaust and related issues. He has taught at Pacific Lutheran University and also at University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Uh, Professor Browning, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Mary Cypers is from the Anti-Defamation League in Seattle. Mary, thank you so much for offering your insights on this issue as well. My pleasure. And George Elbaum is a Holocaust survivor originally from Poland and is joining us from San Francisco where he has worked in business and as an aerospace engineer. Uh, George, thank you so much for joining us as well. You're very welcome. I would like to begin our discussion today with a question uh, to you, George. Uh, the issue of Holocaust denial has to be a deeply personal one for you. Your family was living, from what I understand, in Warsaw, Poland when the Nazis invaded. And it's, I think, probably fair to say that it's no small miracle that you're even here to be talking to us. Uh, can you share a little bit about that experience with us? Yes, I can. I was born in Warsaw in August 1938. One year, one week after my birthday, the Nazis invaded Poland, conquered it in one month. At that time, I had a family of a dozen people, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles. Within three years, out of that dozen people, only my, my mother and I were still alive. The other 10 were all dead, murdered by the Nazis. Why? Because they were Jewish. As we all know, uh, what became known as the Holocaust was the murder of 6 million Jews during the five years of the war. Uh, 6 million is a huge number. I don't think it's a human number. I can't feel it and I doubt very much if my audiences who uh, by choice are mostly high school students can feel what 6 million means. So I try to put it into something that hopefully they will also feel. And I focus on the city of the audience to which I'm speaking. I've done about almost 300 talks in the last 10, 11 years. So let's say in Seattle, population of Seattle is roughly 600,000. So when I speak to audiences in Seattle, tell them that essentially 6 million Jews is equivalent to uh, 10 cities the size of Seattle, or in more human terms, I say the Nazis killed as many Jews every six months as every man, woman, and child living in Seattle right now. And they repeated that 10 times over. And I hope that that gives my audience, the intensity and the magnitude and the atrocity of the Holocaust. 
What enabled you and your mother to survive uh, against all odds? Well, for my mother, it was luck, strength, and wits. For me, it was luck only. Uh, my mother was a very smart woman. She was a young attorney before the war. And after we got out of the ghetto, she smuggled herself and me out of the ghetto. She put my grandmother, her mother, into a bunker and, th and thought that, that my grandmother would be safe there because they had enough food and rations for several years. Turns out it wasn't, but we only learned that after the war. Mm -hmm. So my mother, um, uh, once we're out of the ghetto, she parked me with uh, Catholic families. At that time, my mom tells me at that time my hair was light brown, so I didn't look Jewish. It's only afterwards, after the war, it's kind of miraculously, in 45 and 46, it went from um, light brown to dark brown to black. As, and as I tell my students' audience, and then it turned white again. And I tell them if they don't know how that happens, they better ask their grandparents. Mm -hmm. So that's how we survived the war. Now, you waited to begin talking publicly about your experience for uh, many years after the war ended. Uh, what prompted you to end your silence and to begin talking again? Well, it was over 60 years, actually, that I kept an emotional distance from the Holocaust. The reason was that, um, whereas my mom was a very smart woman, she was a very successful businesswoman in America, a young attorney before the war. She was haunted and traumatized by the Holocaust from her dying day, which was, what, 16 years ago. She died at the age of 91. And I didn't want that to happen to me. Mm -hmm. So I never spoke about the, my Holocaust childhood. In high school, none of my classmates knew about it. In college, only my closest friends knew about it. And um, I kept that up until like November of 2009, when my wife asked me if it's okay to rent a movie called Paperclips, which takes place in the year 2004 in, in Tennessee. And as long as it didn't show any Holocaust scenes, which I don't want to see ever, mm -hmm. I said, sure. And the scene that really clicked for me was when a couple of uh, Holocaust survivors from New York that were invited down to the school in Tennessee when they were speaking to the students and the teachers. And they were telling their stories. You know, the stories didn't mean, I, mean, I knew those stories, I lived through part of that. But the students were crying, the teachers were crying, and it made me realize suddenly that my story has value. So when it ended, uh, um, I realized, you know, that, well, my wife asked me probably for the 20th time whether I'll write my book. I surprised her, I surprised myself. I said, I'll do it. Started the next day, finished three months later. Published it on Amazon and on the free access website. And I thought, I'm done. Well, not quite. Because well, my best friend from college days, who still lives in Boston, he told the head of MIT Hillel, who's also an MIT grad, about my book. She contacted me and she asked me if I would come to Boston to speak at the Holocaust um, Memorial on Holocaust Remembers Day, which was April 10th, 2010. My first reaction was, hell no, because you know, I thought I was finished and I didn't want to expose myself emotionally to speaking to, it, it, it was probably 70, 80 MIT related people, but I didn't want to go into that. But I already had tickets to fly to Boston because I'm on a number of MIT committees. I was there, I am now. 
So the only reason that, that I said no was cowardice. And I can't, I couldn't accept that in myself. So I practiced and I practiced and I thought, okay, I got it down path. The only problem was I wasn't the last speaker and the speaker before me talked about the last letter of Mordecai Anilovich. And I've never heard of it before. He was the, the leader of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. When I heard the, you know, the story, I choked. And then Michelle Fisher, the head of MIT, Bill said, okay, George, now it's your turn. Mm. Uh, I wasn't prepared for that. I kept choking and choking and choking. But enough people walked up to me and said, you got to keep doing this. You got to keep speaking so your story isn't forgotten. So I have. I'll tell you the first one that was in my freshman year at MIT. I was, I was at a, uh, I went to the infirmary for some administrative reason. So that was like what, um, uh, September, October, 1955. And the nurse was a New Englander. And uh, she, apparently I still had an accent by then. So she asked me where I was from. And I told her from Poland. She asked me, when did I come? And I said, in uh, late uh, uh, December 1949, after the war. So she said, well, those horrible things that were shown on newsreels, those things didn't really happen, did they? Uh, I was amazed. This is a Vermonter who certainly saw the newsreels during the war. Mm-hmm. She saw everything that was on our newsreels, and she wanted me to support her view that it didn't happen. When I, I, I know I snapped that, I said, of course it happened. I was there. I remember that. And I realized she didn't believe me. It wasn't the answer she wanted. So she just ignored it. Um, and uh, that feeling, you know, I've met some other Holocaust denials. I thought one quick story. A guy with whom I used to hang out for years in Southern California. Um, he never talked to, you know, I didn't know he was a Holocaust denier. And he didn't know anything about my background because at that time I still never talked about it. Mm-hmm. And then after he moved to France, he got married, he went to France. He would save, he would uh, email me um, photos of himself flying. He was a very good, good pilot. And I like to see that. And then he started sending me videos dealing or information about uh, right wing conspiracies, and I ignored it. And then he started telling me about Holocaust. Uh, no, Holocaust denying facts, supposedly facts, such as uh, six million Jews couldn't have or you know, couldn't have moved, uh, couldn't have died in the Holocaust if they all moved to Israel. So I sent him back an email saying, you know, showing I'm sending him a Wikipedia uh, item that said in 1948, when Israel was founded, there was 600,000 Jews there, not six million. He would always ignore whatever facts I gave him. So finally, after about three or four sessions, I said, mm-hmm. I finally wrote him, I said, look, I knew a family in, in Warsaw that had a dozen people to survive, only my mom and I. So don't tell me it didn't happen. There was about a week or two of email silence. And then he sends me back an email. And I still remember the, the exact words. He said, essentially, uh, he says, he says, I'm sorry that your family suffered. Not that they died, not that they were killed. I'm sorry they suffered. But Hitler and the National Socialists, he didn't call them Nazis. Hitler and the National Socialists could not have done that because Hitler abhorred violence. 
I sent him back an email and said, Carl, I, I never want to hear from you again. And I haven't. Mm -hmm. Professor Browning, in all of your research, how does uh, Georgia's experience post-war pair with that of what you've uncovered, what you've discovered? Well, certainly in terms of, of his personal or his, his willingness to relate his personal story, uh, that reflects one of the patterns. I mean, I, I, there's a great variety here. Uh, some survivors talked among themselves constantly after the war, but didn't find any American audience that wanted to listen. So it was a very much an internal conversation. Others couldn't talk. It was too traumatic, too painful. And it wasn't until the 80s or 90s that they would begin to uh, talk about the previous life from their American life. Uh, and I think that was particularly true uh, of child survivors. In the 1980s, for the first time, they formed child survivor organizations because they had, in a sense, been left out of the earlier conversation. You were involved in the David Irving, Deborah Lipstadt trial that was made famous by the movie Denial. Could you explain for us what the foundation was of that legal action and also whether there are any common elements uh, seen in all situations of people who would deny the reality of the Holocaust? Yeah, uh, the, the Lipstadt trial was unusual in the sense that it was David Irving who was the plaintiff. He sued her for defamation because she had called him and I think the words were a Holocaust denier who distorts and falsifies the evidence in the service of his ideology. Mm -hmm. So those were the three points we had to prove in court. Uh, in England, even though Irving was the plaintiff and Deborah Lipstadt was the defendant, uh, in English libel law, reputation is valued more than freedom of speech. So it is up to the defendant to either prove the truth of what they said or prove they didn't say it, or prove what, what they said didn't mean what the person thought it meant. But it's a defendant that has the burden of proof put upon them. So uh, Deborah assembled a team of historians, of five of us, of which I was one, uh, and we were given different uh, reports to write, but the, our burden was basically to assemble the evidence uh, that would one, prove that what she said was true, uh, and uh, therefore meet uh, the, the test of English libel law. And of course, the hardest part here was not proving the Holocaust happened, but to prove Irving's state of mind, that he knew he was lying, mm -hmm. that he was distorting and falsifying evidence. He couldn't be doing this in good faith. It couldn't be innocent error. So of course, proving a state of mind is much harder than proving that an event occurred. Uh, in the course of proving the state of mind, you have to assemble so much evidence that the byproduct is that you demonstrate beyond any reasonable doubt the Holocaust occurred. Mm -hmm. But our much higher burden was to prove that, that, that Irving was a fraud. Irving was engaged in historical malpractice, and we had to prove that he knew he was engaged in a dishonest enterprise and that he was doing it as a neo-Nazi racist, that he had a racist right-wing agenda. So it was the parts that reflected what was in Irving's mind, what was his ideology, and what was his falsification that were the higher legal hurdles of the trial than proving the Holocaust happened, which was the easier of the three of the three hurdles. So are there some uh, common elements to Holocaust deniers that they all tend to retreat into and in supporting their beliefs or uh, what they are speaking out on? Yes, there are three main points that we had to prove to, to, to basically prove that, to prove that the Holocaust happened, we had to prove the following. One was that there was a Nazi plan and program to murder the Jews of Europe. 
Secondly, uh, that uh, this was done in which at least half the victims died in gas chambers. Mm -hmm. And thirdly, that uh, the number of victims was in the five to six million range. What Holocaust deniers say is there was, Hitler gave no order, there was no plan, no intention, nothing remotely close to six million Jews died, and the gas chambers are a myth. Mm -hmm. uh, so that uh, they, they don't deny that some Jews may have died of typhus in some camps, that they would have suffered, as, as George said. The Jews suffered, they don't deny, but that they were murdered systematically in a, in a program, including gas chambers, that reached the magnitude of five to six million mm -hmm. is what the Holocaust deniers are trying to, to deny. That's what, when we say they deny the Holocaust, those are the three things that in the court of law constituted proving that, that they were deniers. This is what they had denied. Have you had an opportunity or have you had the experience of visiting one or more of the extermination camps? And if so, which ones and what impact did that have on you? Well, as part of my research, I've, I've, I've traveled in, in Poland and been to Auschwitz-Birkenau, Sobibor, Belzec, Treblinka, Chelmno, uh, and camps in other parts of Europe. So I've seen quite a number of them. Later, I went back to Helmno and they were excavating. They had a tractor factory on what used to be the villa where the prisoners were brought in undressed and forced onto the gas van. The fascinating there was what I looked, you could see all the foundations and it matched all the eyewitness testimony I had read. Mm -hmm. uh, where the, the, uh, the aisle was, they were forced down, where were the undressing rooms, where was this, the gap they made in the foundation for the ramp that would run up to the gas van. So for an historian to suddenly see uncovered before your eyes, you know, 50 years later, a, a visual material confirmation of what the eyewitness testimony had been was a very moving experience. As a high school student growing up in Los Angeles, I had the opportunity to participate in a really amazing program called March of the Living. And I was able to go with a group of Jewish teenagers from Los Angeles to do a two-part program where one, we toured um, many of the camps, but I think one of the, the elements that was most powerful about the experience is that I was able to go with a survivor who had never actually been back and his name was Marco. And he, um, I mean, seeing the experience through his lens was incredibly powerful um, and something that will stay with me my whole life and the relationship that we as young people developed with him was something truly special that I'll carry with me for all of these years. And having to see him relive that history and the memories of what he experienced um, was very moving. And I also think another very powerful piece of this was not only witnessing um, like Christopher did and, and you know really exploring and understanding the history through actually visualizing and, and getting to see what was there. But we also were able to join with young Jewish um, youth from all over the world who, um, you know, it was a moment I think of pride for our people, even though tremendous sadness, because we knew that we had overcome so, so much devastation and horror in each of our family histories, but we are also resilient and our communities have grown and have thrived despite you know so much historical trauma. So I think those were elements of the experience that for me were particularly meaningful. I never intended to see any, any Holocaust camps, concentration camps. 
And the first time that I went to speak, it was a, 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 a city called Schmidnik, which is near Lublin. And they had told me that they had arranged after my talk there to, to take me to, there's a camp within six kilometers from there, mm -hmm. 10 kilometers. Uh, I, I do not want to see it, never will. But the very first time I spoke at a high school, it was actually, it's a, it was a small experimental school here in Seattle, there in Seattle. And they wanted to show me the books that they were using. And, they, and I opened up at a, a random page, it was a drawing. It wasn't a photograph, it was just a drawing mm -hmm. of a couple of German soldiers in uniforms with, at a train station and they were loading Jews on the train station. And I didn't expect it. I mean, I just expected, I, would, I didn't know what I expected. So I just opened it up to, to look like, okay, you know, they were going to describe something. But seeing that photo, that, photo, that drawing, it sent a shiver through me. And I, I closed it. Miri, when we spoke a little bit earlier, uh, prior to this program, you described not only the increase in Holocaust denial, but also in hate crimes uh, against Jewish people here in the United States. What has been your experience uh, in terms of documenting that, the figures, and how is the Anti-Defamation League responding to that? We have seen, unfortunately, across the United States and, you know, here in my local community in Seattle, the skyrocketing of hate crimes targeting so many different marginalized communities since 2016. Um, in Washington state in particular, where I reside, we have the third highest per capita rate of hate crimes in the United States mm -hmm. and the fourth highest number followed only by California, New York, or New Jersey. So very populous states. And unfortunately, like many, um, like many minority communities and communities of color, the Jewish community has been particularly victimized and targeted by hate crimes when it comes to religious groups that are targeted by hate, according to FBI statistics, which is really the most comprehensive data out there. Um, the Jewish community is the majority of religious-based hate crimes. Um, so we've seen a true skyrocket in anti-Semitic crimes being committed. And that doesn't even include incidents. It just really includes crimes that rise to that kind of you know, criminal penalty. And here at the ADL, we also do a tremendous amount of data collection and tracking and supporting individuals who experience anti-Semitism or any other form of bigotry. The cases that we've seen have also been skyrocketing nationwide. Um, last year in our five state region in the Pacific Northwest, we received um, over 500, 524 to be exact reported incidents of hate in the community. A lot of that was anti-Semitic hate. Some of it was white supremacist activity. So it kind of sheds light on some of the bigger picture issues that are happening in society. But unfortunately, this has been a trend that's been rapidly escalating um, against the Jewish community and against many others like the Latinx community, the LGBTQ community, et cetera, in recent times. So that is an unfortunate reality of our world today. We're seeing you know, the real scourge of anti-Semitism and different forms of hate um, resurfacing in very serious and, and complicated and often new ways. Um, and at the ADL, you know, we, we have a very integrated and holistic approach to fighting those ills because there's really no civil bullet that 
will be able to address or prevent um, these kinds of uh, age-old hatreds from coming back. What do you think relates to the higher proportion in this state uh, as opposed to others that you might tend to expect to see it there? The data is nuanced, and I think sometimes you have to have a finer lens um, and analysis when you look at data around hate crimes. Part of it is obviously the unfortunate and despicable reality that hate crimes are rising across our communities and mm -hmm. the numbers are reflecting that. But part of what we're also seeing is that when hate crimes rise, it also means that communities have trust in law enforcement to report those crimes or trust mm. in organizations to report them. So it can often reflect a positive change or a positive reality that more and more people are feeling confident and comfortable coming forward reporting what happened to them. Mm -hmm. um, perhaps there's you know, enough societal or community support. Perhaps law enforcement has really done a strong job of building relationships with particular communities that enable them to know how to report and that they can be safe in doing so. So it really reflects a number of different factors, not always just how large is a particular community or how many hate incidents or crimes occur. Mm -hmm but it does reflect a very sad reality across our country that hate is on the rise, but encouraging communities to report and feel safe and knowledgeable in what their rights are is a, another um, important issue that ADL has been working on. Mm -hmm. There are so many other issues uh, that we need to explore with this and we are going to do that. We just can't fit it into one program. So we are going to break here uh, and we will revisit this conversation and extend beyond where we've started as a foundation in our next edition of this program of Challenge 2.0 next week. So I thank all of you for joining us and hope you'll join us again next week. Thank you very much. If you've enjoyed this program, found our conversations to be informative, entertaining, and thought-provoking, and the vision inspiring of people from different backgrounds who can disagree without being disagreeable, Perhaps you might consider supporting our program with a contribution. Your support will not only help our program continue, it will also support the broader efforts of Paths to Understanding, our supporting parent nonprofit organization. If you've enjoyed this program, please give us five stars and leave a review. If you can also tell one friend about the show, that would be great. You can find us on social media at Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find out more and financially support the show at pathstounderstanding.org. The program is hosted by executive producer Jeff Renner, produced by Tom Butterworth and John Sharifi. Cameras and audio by Rich McAdams, Tom Butterworth, and Dean Cruccio. Ian Olson is the production assistant.